or everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 436. And before we dive in, I just need to let you know that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not reflect the views of the Melissa Ambrosini show or myself, Melissa Ambrosini. The content in this show is for entertainment purposes only and not to be taken as medical advice. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your health or lifestyle. Now, let's dive in. In episode 439 with Dr. Matthew Cook, we are diving deep into all things COVID, vaccines, boosting your health, not just for now, but forever and so much more. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide and Comparisonitis. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this episode because this is something that you guys have requested over and over again. So today we are doing a Vaccine 101. We cover vaccine injuries, We talk about how to support your body if you choose to get the vaccine and what you can do after to help your body. We also talk about COVID and how you can boost your immune system right now and then what you can do if you get COVID. We talk about boosters and then we also talk about who should not get vaccinated and so much more. And for those of you that have never heard of Dr. Matthew Cook, He is the president and founder of BioReset Medical and medical advisor of the BioReset Network. He is a board certified anesthesiologist with over 20 years of experience in practicing medicine, focusing the last 14 years on functional and regenerative medicine. His practice, BioReset Medical, provides treatments for conditions ranging from pain and complex illness to anti-aging and wellness. He treats some of the most challenging to diagnose and difficult to live with ailments that people suffer from today, including Lyme disease, chronic pain, PTSD, and myotoxin poisoning. And his approach is to use the most non-invasive, natural, and integrative ways possible. For everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes, and that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 439. Now let's dive in. Matthew, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have this conversation. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning besides the IV that you're doing right now? (laughs) I know, isn't that hilarious? So I make this amazing coffee and it has a little bit of glutamine in it and it has Laird Hamilton's coconut creamer. And then it has an immunoglobin that kind of is a immune reset for the gut. And so then we blend all of that together and make coffee. So I had that. I had kintan. I I drink these like kintan. It's like mineral, sea mineral, can mineral supplement. So I had two hypertonic versions of that and two isotonic versions of that. And then I had some raw goat milk. 
And then I had three cups of water. And while I was doing that, like I did a sauna and a cold plunge. And then that's pretty much my morning routine. And then I exercised and did a little yoga. I love it. And right now, as we record this, you are getting an IV. Well, you know what? It was amazing. I had a cancellation because it's been a little crazy here with COVID. And so then I was sitting there and I was talking to my staff and I was like, I have an hour right now. And so then I said, hey, let's do an IV. So I'm doing an IV also. So this is the day is, and then I'm talking to you. So my day is totally going the way I wanted to go. So thank you for being part of it. <laughs> Beautiful. I'm like, that would be amazing. I'd love to be getting a Myers cocktail right now whilst I do this interview with you. It's actually like a super amazing thing to do. And then when you do these IVs, you'll start to feel a sense of wellness come over yourself, which I felt I had it all day. It's interesting. If I do sauna and cold plunge, You'll feel your body warm up. And then once you get into the cold plunge, it's psychologically a little exciting to get yourself in there. And initially you think, oh, what am I, what's going to happen? And then after, it takes me about like 15 seconds to calm down. And then I just chill and then breathe in that kind of get into like deep breathing. And then once that happens, generally I feel perfect all day. But then the IVs are really, really nice because I can feel like, anxiety and stress, everything just melt away when I do it. I can feel my voice just soften too. It's interesting. How often do you do them? How many times a week? I probably do one every week. Just not, I never have a plan of doing one, but if I'm just standing around and nothing's going on, a lot of times I'll do one. And then I have a whole bunch of different ones I'm always experimenting with and trying. And so then it's, it's awesome to be at work and think about like this stuff. And it's interesting because I was an anesthesiologist full-time before I did this. And so I probably put, I don't know, eighteen or 20,000 IVs in over my time and in the anesthesia world. And I'd never really had an IV. And so now, now it's interesting to go through the same thing people are going through. And then it's interesting to see how you feel with them. And that it helps me understand how they work also doing some kind of interesting yeah, very fascinating. I've had a few in my lifetime. My husband, he he gets them a bit more regularly than I do, which we'll talk about when we get into the show about his journey and what he's been experiencing. But just to give a little bit of a background, I wanted to bring a variety of people on the show with different views and opinions on COVID. I interviewed Dr. John Martini talking about the polarity of the pandemic, and that episode has gone viral. It's gone absolutely crazy. And then I've got an episode with Donnie Yance, which is about to come out, and his perspective from a holistic, natural viewpoint. And now we have you, and you are more on the pro-vaccine side of things. However, you have shared with me that your opinions have evolved. And before this conversation, we had a Zoom catch up and you shared with me how your viewpoints have evolved. And I want to dive into that. But first, can we talk about COVID vaccines 101? What is in the vaccines? What the vaccines are available? What's the difference between them? Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, Novavax, COVAX. What is the difference and what do we need to know about them in terms of the RNA and the mRNA? Let's do like a vaccine 101. Okay, that's a good one. So the mRNA vaccines, this is like Pfizer and Moderna. And so then the way that they work is that they code for basically the spike protein. 
And so then what happens is, is when that gets injected, that the vaccine is going to be incorporated into a cell. And then when it goes into the cell, what a cell does is the nucleus of a cell basically makes mRNA. And then that is a signal to go out into another part of the cell. And then basically the cell can print a protein based upon that. And so then the mRNA vaccine goes in and then the cell looks at it and says, okay, we're going to print this protein. And so it starts to print the spike protein. And then as a result of printing that spike protein, that spike protein goes out and then your immune system sees it and it says, oh man, there's spike protein there. And so then the immune system says, let's make an antibody to that spike protein. And so then as a result of having that antibody, now then let's say a couple months on down the road, the person got exposed to COVID, they already have antibodies floating around and those antibodies can see the COVID virus because that virus also has the spike protein. And so what happens is, is that helps the immune system start to develop a coherent response to fighting this thing. And since you already have a bunch of antibodies, and then remind me, because I'm later, I'm gonna, I'll talk to you about monoclonal antibodies which is going to be an interesting story for you. So that would be number one. And so then that's like the mRNA vaccines. And so then now there's the vaccines that are based on what would be like an adenovirus platform. And so then what happens with those is is that they take those code for the spike protein also, and that adenovirus then will get inserted into the cell And then what it will do is it will go into the nucleus and it will then print the spike protein. And as a result of printing that spike protein, then that create an immune response just like the mRNA vaccines. So then so a cell engulfs the adenovirus. And then once that happens, it goes into the nucleus where the DNA is. And then the adenovirus pushes this DNA into the nucleus. The adenovirus is engineered so it can't make copies of itself, but the gene for the spike protein can be read and copied. I'll talk you through this, okay? So then basically the mRNA virus is just an instruction to print a spike protein. The adenovirus ones, what they do is they're engineered so they can't get inserted into your DNA, but they go into the nucleus and they get printed and then they print spike proteins. So then what Novavax is, they inserted the spike protein into a different virus called baculovirus and then allowed it to infect moth cells And then once that happened, they created spike proteins, and then they harvested those spike proteins, and then they mixed them with what are called nanoparticles. And the nanoparticles couldn't replicate or cause COVID-19. But then what happened, and I don't think that it's not available right now in the United States, but then basically what happens is the injection includes many spike protein nanoparticles that generates an immune response also. And then as a result of that, we make B-cells. So then the AstraZeneca and the J&J vaccines, these are called adenovirus vaccines. And so then what they do is they take an adenovirus and they make it so that it's engineered so that it can't replicate itself. That means it's not going to be able to continue once it got into you to infect you or do anything. And then they put the genetic code for the spike protein inside of that adenovirus. Now, like I said, 
that adenovirus gets into actually into the nucleus. And then once it's in there, it can't get inserted into our DNA, but our body looks at that and says, oh, we should print that. And so they print it. And then the printing instructions then go back out in the cell, and then the cell makes the spike protein. And so then that spike protein gets put out on the outside of the cell, and then the body goes, "Uh uh-oh, there's spike protein there, and it starts to make antibodies. And antibodies is how the immune system recognizes problems. So I got number one, I can either put the printing instructions on mRNA, which is not going to get into your genetic code, but will cause a cell to print spike proteins. Option two is I could put it into this adenovirus that will go in there, and then the adenovirus will be printed, and that printing will then allow you to print spike proteins. So that's number two. And then number three, the Novavax is they basically infected these moths with coronavirus, and then they got the moths to make spike protein. And then what happened is, is then they took and they combined those with nanoparticles. And then those nanoparticles that have spike protein, they put that as an injection into your body as a vaccine. And then your body recognizes that. And then as a result of recognizing that spike protein, it leads us to make antibodies. So all of these strategies are helping us to make antibodies to the spike protein. Now, let me tell you one other way that you could make some antibodies. And that would be like, let's say you got COVID. So then COVID actually, then that virus is going to go inside your cell. And then it's going to take over the machinery of your cell and get your cell to make more of the whole virus. But then in the process of making more of the whole virus, then what it's going to do is it's going to cause you to make spike proteins, but then the whole virus. And then your body is going to see all of this virus that was just made. And when it sees it, one of the things it's going to do is it's going to see that spike protein and go, oh, that's not supposed to be here. And it's going to make antibodies. So then now, whether you got Novavax or whether you got one of the adenoviruses or whether you got vaccines or one of the mRNA vaccines, as a result of any of those things, what would happen is, is your body sees that spike protein. Your body says, hey, let's make an immune response because this could be a problem. And then that immune response is going to be part of how we fight and keep from getting it next time. Okay. So you got the Pfizer vaccine, which is an mRNA. What are your thoughts on it now, knowing that you now know and seeing a bit more data? What are your thoughts on it now? Would you have chosen that one now? Yes. If I could do it all over again, I still would have done that. However, if you look at the data, the data would say that of the mRNA vaccines, I think probably the Moderna has potentially slightly better, longer protection. And so I might think if I could go back in time again, and when I got it, there was no choice. I just got what happened to be available in Silicon Valley. I might have gotten the Moderna. And what I'll tell you is that if you get a vaccine, then what's going to happen is is your body is going to be printing spike proteins and there's going to be some spike proteins in that area of your shoulder. And then you're going to create an immune response to it. And there's going to be some good things and some bad things about that. However, 
if you get coronavirus, coronavirus likes to go to a lot of different cranial nerves that go to your brain. It likes to go to your lungs. It likes to go to your heart. It likes to go to blood vessels. And so then there's going to be an overwhelming amount of spike protein (laughs) and all of those things as a result of an actual infection. And so then from that perspective, I still think that it's a reasonable decision to get vaccines. And then even here we are, it's the middle of January of 2022. And we're in a very super interesting moment because Omicron is here. And so we've got this new evolving variant that's going to be a little different. And so then what's going to happen is we've got a handful of vaccines. And with that handful of vaccines, we will see how they do. And so we're not really going to know this. We're not going to know for six months or a year how each one of them is going to have a different effectiveness. Each one of them is going to have a little bit of different data. And so then I can talk in more detail about it. But in broad terms, in North America, and that's the area that I probably have the best finger on the pulse of what's happening, people who are vaccinated still tend to have less intense infections and they're less likely to go to the hospital and less likely to have some long-term problems is my sense of things. But the game is continuing to change and the game is continuing to evolve. And so we'll see how that goes. My other sense in terms of that whole vaccine side of the equation is that we have seen a lot of COVID long haulers and long-term kind of COVID complications. And we've seen some vaccine problems. And I would say it's at this point, and it's still changing and evolving, but I would think it's probably five to one. And so we've seen a lot more COVID long haulers than we have COVID vaccine problems. And I'm deeply thinking about the COVID vaccine problems because the people who tend to have problems with the COVID vaccines tend to be people who are immunocompromised and have stealth infections and Lyme and mold and things like that. And yet those people are the people who are most at risk for trouble with COVID also. And so, and so I, my heart goes out to people in that category because they're in a rock and a hard place of, do I actually make a decision to get the vaccine? And they're a little bit worried about the risk or versus do I make a decision to not get it? And what we found is I got my IV today. This combination where I give a lot of magnesium and calcium and minerals and, and vitamin C and glutathione and I get some NAD, when I do that, when I, I started doing that, and then also giving peptides before and after vaccines. And I had a lot of people come in that had a lot of headaches and complications after the vaccines, and essentially we could make them go away. And in general, my sense has been, if I have somebody with a vaccine problem, nine times out of 10, I can fix it in a week or two. Whereas long-term COVID is, I think, an entirely different animal. And part of the way to think about that is if you're printing a little bit of spike protein for a couple of weeks from a shot in your shoulder, that's one thing. The people are getting COVID are having actual COVID virus replicating it all over their body, but particularly in their airway and close in and around their brain for weeks. And so then it's a much bigger stress and trigger to the immune system, which is why long COVID is a harder problem in general to fix than a, a long-term vaccine. Even with Omicron, which is showing not to be as severe, 
So then this was a good one. On the one hand, Omicron is showing to be not as severe. On the other hand, it's evolving for us. We have patients all over the world, and I'm talking to people, you know, all day, every day, everywhere. And the typical thing that I'll hear is my daughter came back from like an event with all of her friends, and like all 15 of them got COVID. I've heard that like 18 times. And then what I'll hear is I'll hear like 12 of them did fine and three of them got really sick or all 15 of them did fine, and mom got it, and brother and sister got it, and then dad got really, really sick. Now, obviously, this is way better because we were at a much higher likelihood of large number of people getting really sick and potentially going to the hospital. And when I say large, I mean, this is in the 1% range, but still, that's a large number of people if millions of people are getting infected. The Omicron also lasts longer, is my sense. And so that with Omicron, you will see people get better. And with wild type COVID, I noticed people would get better. And then once they were better, it was just like they were perfect. And we would do things and it would be pretty easy. And the next thing would be like, oh, I would be working, talking, talking, talking to them. And then they're like, okay, they're fine. I don't need to talk to them anymore. And now what will happen is we'll get a lot of people, oh, I got sick and I was better. And then all of a sudden it almost relapsed. And so it hangs around a little bit longer. And then in the immunocompromised population, and I've had some people who are very immunocompromised, and for them, it basically looks just like the original COVID. From an evolution of thought perspective, it was interesting because that means one way of thinking about this, and I think everybody's doing this, everybody has had a little fatigue of this whole conversation and is ready to get back to life. And so then you say, if you're super immunocompromised, then I would definitely spend January and February at home while we sort this out. And so then you can have segments of the population that can really take a lot more care in terms of isolation and protecting themselves. And then you can have segments of the population where you say, hey, you young kids, you can probably run around and for the most part do stuff. That being said, when I take you through treatment options and algorithms, a lot of really good things are going to come into the market in the next four months. And so if you had a choice of getting it today or waiting a couple months when there's more availability of some of the things that could bail you out, then what I'm going to say is if you're risk minded, I would be careful for the next couple months. And then what sort of things are you talking about that will be becoming available? Other vaccines or what what are you referring to? So the vaccine conversation is where it is at this point, and it seems to be helpful. And yet I'm trying to evolve into a conversation that is winning in terms of trying to win hearts and minds a little bit on this because it's such a controversial thing. And I like to say I'm not really a pro-vaccine person. I'm just a pro-health person. And so then they've been, for the most part, helpful. And if you go back in time for me, when we were taking care of a lot of people early on and people were getting desperately sick, it was pretty intense. And then the vaccines came out here and they were very effective. And so then almost overnight, suddenly the population of people that I take care of just disappeared in our population. And so for people who were relatively healthy and for the most part taking care of themselves. It was almost like COVID didn't exist, but you saw it in society. And then the Delta variant came on and suddenly you started to see breakthrough infections and stuff like that. And then now with Omicron, they're, I think, helpful in terms of 
preventing a more serious infection. And they're helpful in, in terms of supporting immune response, but they're not like dramatically helpful like they were in terms of before they were pre- preventing like almost anything happening for the most part was our experience. Now, on the vaccine front, we're looking at billions of dollars going into an evolution of of research in that area. And so then we're going to have different platforms that that is done on with everything from mRNA to the viral things to things like Novavax. And so then all of that is going to be interesting. And then we'll get data as we move forward on those topics. Now, this is maybe not in the best order, but just for continuity, I told you that all of those vaccines are just an attempt to get your body to make an antibody. And an antibody is a protein that basically recognizes like the spike protein. And those two spike proteins, they meet in key and lock type of mechanism, and then they're stuck together and that triggers the immune response to do it. So it turns out that we can use biochemistry to print copies of an antibody. And so that's what's called a monoclonal antibody. And so then that is millions of copies of a protein. And that protein, when that floats around in your body, if it sees a coronavirus, it neutralizes it. And so then a monoclonal antibody is just a printed version of what your your body is actually making in response to the vaccine. And so then the monoclonal antibodies are interesting. And just like I told you, there's four or five different types of vaccines and, and brands and stuff like that. There's different brands and types of monoclonal antibodies. And it turns out the monoclonal antibodies were unbelievably helpful early on. And they were all very effective because they were antibodies against that spike protein and they worked. And so then if people got sick, what they would do is they would go to an urgent care or a hospital. And then if they were diagnosed and then the hospital said, okay, yep, you have COVID. And then they would give you an IV infusion or just subcutaneously inject those antibodies. And then those antibodies would go and then they would bind onto the COVID and start and help your immune system work. Unfortunately, most of the ones that we had are not very effective for Omicron. And so then we, so if you go back in time to October, October, we were a low stress because we were like, here's the thing. Okay, you're probably vaccinated. Maybe you're not. Even if you're not and you get sick, you're going to get monoclonal antibodies and they're really, really effective. Now then, the effectiveness of them has gone down. The data now is that the best monoclonal antibody for Omicron is Citrovimab, which is the one that's made by GlaxoSmithKline. But that one's basically as... There's an old expression from where I grew up in Montana. They say it's hard to find as hen's teeth are so hard to find that I don't think I've ever even seen them. (laughs) But so then that one, it's available in some areas and that has potential to be a home run type of modality. But then now to answer the question in terms of other things that are coming available, there's a drug combination of two drugs that are antiviral drugs that Pfizer has that's coming out. I think it's called Paxlovid. That one is a really good antiviral. And so an antiviral is like an antibiotic. 
And so then if you imagine if anyone is listening, like that, you might know somebody that has had like a herpes as a virus that can affect people. And sometimes it can affect your lips and your mouth. And sometimes it can affect the genital area. And so then that's a virus that will, if it comes into your body, it takes over your machinery of your cell and starts replicating. But you can take an antiviral. And so this is like a whole category. It's just a drug that blocks the ability of that virus to replicate. And so up until now, we really haven't had a great kind of quote unquote drug that would be something that could block the ability of that virus to replicate. And there's a couple versions, but there's one that's way better, which is the Pfizer version. And so then that one's going to be an interesting category of treatment. Unfortunately, I've been calling around to all of our pharmacies and we've been having people call. That's still even in California not available yet. So then you begin to see, okay, let's say I had somebody who was real immunocompromised, real sick. Let's say they were afraid of the vaccine. And I, I understand that even though I've found that when I do all the stuff that I do and I support people, I tend to get them through it. But then we still have lots of people who are reluctant. And so we're working and kind of supporting them through. That's going to be a nice alternative for people to know, okay, at least there's going to be a medication that I could take that would be an antiviral that might support me through. Got it. What about ivermectin? So then the ivermectin one is super interesting. This, I guess, maybe relates to the era of the day. When I grew up and left Montana and went to medical school, the only thing that anybody wanted to talk about was like, what does the, the randomized clinical trial show? So when you review the data on ivermectin, I think that the data has not been as good as people would have liked. And I'll say the downside. And then number two, there were problems with sourcing because people were getting veterinary versions of it and potentially having issues with dosing and potentially taking too much. And it can cause some significant GI side effects. And then number three, those side effects can be limiting for people. And so then if you looked at it from a purely data-driven perspective, we had some skepticism. On, on the other side of the coin, what I can tell you is I've had a lot of patients tell me that they took it and that it helped them. And then the next thing is I was fairly dismissive on one podcast of it, and I wasn't really being dismissive. And this was back when the monoclonals were working amazing and the vaccines were working amazing. And so at that moment, I wasn't, didn't really mean to be that dismissive. But then on the other side of the coin, I said, we have such great options. And almost nobody that was getting vaccinated was going to the hospital or really having hardly any troubles. And the monoclonals were working amazing. So I was like leaning more towards those as conceptually. And then now, regardless of, I think if you're vaccinated, you're less likely to have a severe problem. But regardless of if you're vaccinated or not, it's super easy to get Omicron. Like the vaccine will definitely not prevent you in any way, shape or form if you're triple vaccinated and you stand next to somebody and they cough on you. From my experience of talking to people, it's 100% chance you're going to get it. And then you say, oh, wait a second, you just said there were some antiviral drugs. Okay, guess what? Those are not available. Okay. And we're talking to people all over the world and there's millions and millions of people. And so then you begin to say, oh, okay, there are a handful of repurposed drugs that seem to have some effect that's beneficial. And 
what about taking those? And so then I think that depending on where you are and what's available to you, and then depending on whether or not you're vaccinated, okay, let's pick some numbers. Let's say it's 30% effective. Let's say it's 50% effective. Let's say it's 70% effective. Pick those three numbers. I'd actually be fine with somebody taking it. And if I was in a place where I didn't have access to anything else, I would probably think about taking it too, because at least taking it is doing something. We're looking for something that's 90% effective. But if we're at the edges of availability of things, taking two or three things, and then this is how people like me traditionally deal with all complex illnesses, infections. We try to do two or three things, and many things that I do might be 20 or 30% effective, but if I add two or three of them together, I might get into a ballpark of being fairly effective. So I think I come to the hydroxychloroquine with an idea that I think is probably extremely helpful for certain people. And so then I'm also trying to get to a point where I'm vaccine neutral. And so then as we're just working our way through yeses and nos, okay, what did you do? Did you want to get the vaccine or no? Okay, that's fine. If you didn't, then I I might lean toward a little bit more towards being aggressive with everything that I can do to work in that way. And so then you've got ivermectin in that category, you've got hydroxychloroquine in that category. And hydroxychloroquine also is the same thing. The data was disappointing. And it was disappointing to the extent that if you looked at like my brothers and sisters at Stanford and UCSF and the academic people that are around me, it became dismissive enough to say it's not worth considering. And I'll I'll tell you that I've had people in faraway places and even close by who told me, you know what, I think that that was the only thing that saved me. And I've also have friends that are doctors who said, you know what, I use hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And a friend of mine who's treated 1000 people with that combination, and none of them went to the hospital. And he's an extremely good and caring and thoughtful doctor. There's an antidepressant named fluvoxamine. The fluvoxamine has some antiviral mechanisms as well. And so the combination, and it can have a fair bit of nausea and, and side effects. But between the three of those, those are potential things to consider it, that ha- would have some antiviral mechanisms. But then, what, and if you want to keep going, then I'll go through some other categories. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I want to talk to you about vaccine injuries. You spoke a little bit about that at the start of this interview. Which vaccine have you seen cause the highest level of vaccine injuries? Now that we've got a few years behind us, what are you seeing in your clinic? So you're going to break this down between the adenovirus vaccines, which would be the AstraZeneca and the J&J, and then the mRNA vaccines. And interestingly, the adenovirus vaccines seem to potentially be more likely for some people to form a clot. And so then you'll you'll see people develop some relatively crazy neurological symptoms. If they get a clot in their brain, then that that's is basically like having a stroke. And so then that's a fairly extreme situation to have happen. Now, interestingly. Who are some people who tend to be more likely to have a clot, i.e. hypercoagulable? That would be 
almost all people with complex immune infections and problems and self and vector-borne infections like Lyme disease and Bartonella and um, Babesia and and all of the co-infections that go along with that, and then also chronic mold. And so then this goes back to, you have to think, but boy, and I I, I think that we've seen more vaccine complications in that population. And so then it's going to be interesting to think about, is, is there some populations that have more problems But then again, also, that's a vulnerable population because they're probably more susceptible to COVID. And and when they get COVID, whether they're vaccinated or not, they often tend to have a harder time. However, we've had a lot of people with Lyme and mold who we've gone all in on treating both vaccinated and unvaccinated. And for the most part, almost everybody shockingly well. Like in our population, in terms of acute COVID, everybody did great. Now, in terms of COVID vaccine complications, we have seen people from the the adenovirus vaccines that had clot and stroke type of things. I had one person that basically went deaf and blind. And these complications were basically so extreme that we did like a phone call. The handful of those that I got and one person that developed ALS, if you can believe that. So then, but if you wrap your head around this, all of them were so sick that they basically, it's like almost having a stroke. And so none of them we ever ended up really seeing. Why did you not see them? Just because they're too sick to travel. Yeah. I mean, maybe did a Zoom or something and kind of had some ideas, but it was difficult. But what's interesting is if you think in America, and this one's going to be interesting, there's a wave. And so then we... When people first got vaccinated, we saw no problems at all. And then there was a wave three to six months later of problems. And then we haven't really seen almost any problems lately. Like for a while, we saw a real big bump in the fall. So we saw this, and I think that was the tail of all the people that got vaccinated in like July and August. And so then we saw a tale of those. We saw a ton of brain fog, malaise, headache, low energy, difficult myocarditis. thinking. I have seen a lot of myocarditis after COVID, a lot. And I have some thoughts on it. I don't think that I've seen a myocarditis after a vaccine, although I know that it's reported. But it's interesting, that wave has to some extent seemed to pass. And even though we saw some numbers, we're the type of people, if you had a vaccine complication, we would probably be really good people to call. So as a result of that, because we've got a whole bunch of things that we do to fix that type of stuff. And so as a result, the fact that I ha- I'm not getting any calls anymore on the COVID vaccine complications sort of makes me feel that that problem is potentially overdrawn a little bit. And traditionally, We typically said that the ratio of a long-term COVID to a long-term COVID vaccine problem was a 10 to 1, and that the long-term COVID problem was 10 times worse than the, the COVID vaccine. However, there are for sure exceptions, and there are some people that have these out of proportion things. It may be because they're hypercoagulable for some other reason. It may be that there are other things going on there. And then on the COVID vaccine front, now this is going to be super interesting. And I have a great analogy for this. And so I, th- I think you're going to like this one. So then imagine imagine that somebody got a COVID vaccine or let's say they had COVID. So I'm like, I'll take both of them. And so then 
let's say the person that got the COVID vaccine, they got a shot in their shoulder. And so then that vaccine went into the cell and caused the cell to print a spike protein. Now, I call the spike protein for my analogy is like a crackhead. So I got a, a crackhead sitting on the outside of a cell. And so then the cop car and the cop car is what's called a monocyte. So the, the cop car goes to pick up that crackhead and it picks it up and it grabs that spike protein. And then it's going to start a immune response of clearing up. But the problem is sometimes that cop car can never get that crackhead out of it. And so it can that spike it can't get that spike protein out of it, and so then that cop car becomes a permanently dysfunctional cop car. And so, and this is a theory that comes from a doc named Bruce Patterson, who I think is an extremely awesome influence in the space. And so then, what he has found is is that when those white blood cells, the monocyte, go and pick up that spike protein then that spike protein gets stuck in them. And now that monocyte, that white blood cell, gets converted from being just a functional, healthy white blood cell. It gets converted into being an inflammatory monocyte. Now, that could happen because it picked up the a spike protein as a result of a vaccine, or that monocyte could pick up that spike protein in your lung because it just happened to go there because you got COVID. So then Imagine now you've got one population that was vaccinated and another population that got actual COVID. But then either way, the white blood cells could pick up that spike protein. And so then they started doing this testing. And what they found is that six months, eight months, a year out, and I even saw somebody yesterday who was like a year out and he still had spike protein in his monocytes. And I think this is helpful, hopefully, for people to hear. As a result of that, that is a crucial and very important part of the immune system that now becomes dysfunctional. Now then, let me give you a couple of things, tell you a couple of little data points that are interesting around that. When you exercise, you tend to mobilize monocytes. But if you're mobilizing a bunch of inflammatory cells, a lot of people that are either having a long COVID vaccine reaction or a long COVID they have no exercise tolerance because when you mobilize those inflammatory monocytes, they don't do well. Turns out those monocytes can go to your brain. And so then when they go to your brain, what happens? Then they cause neuroinflammation that make you have brain fog and feel terrible and stuff like that. And the combination of the whole physiology leads people to have a lot of high levels of inflammation and high levels of inflammatory markers on their blood tests. So basically, certain cell lines get affected. And then also, then a bunch of biomarkers start to get, be affected, basically just tell us that the body's in a lot of inflammation. And so then my moral of my story on that is, is that either COVID or a COVID vaccine can come in and start to wreak havoc a little bit on the immune system. And then that can lead to long-term consequences. Now, interestingly, we have a whole bunch of strategies and ways of thinking about the immune system and how to regulate it and balance it. So that then when I hear that, and I think this is useful, I think, oh, Okay, we have strategies and ways to evolve our way through that. Right now, with traditional Western medicine, most of those people are basically waylaid 
and left at the edges of society because traditionally we don't have a way to deal with that. And so then they're stuck with long-term consequences and complications that nobody is talking about and nobody has any idea of what to do about it. And so as a result, that has led to a lot of fear. But I think as we start to clear up scientifically what's going on and build a better model and then start to build a model in terms of how to treat and manage on the other side, However, however we plan to prevent it, vaccines or however, and then however we treat the long-term consequences, the, at least there's a, a thoughtful, rational strategy of how to get through it. Hmm. What can we do to prepare our body before we potentially get COVID or before we choose to get the vaccine? What can we do to boost our immune system to be in the best shape possible before we decide that, okay, we're going to make this decision and we're going to get it or we get COVID? And then what can we do after? I want to help people. I want to equip people with the tools and the things that they can do before and after either of those two things happen to them. Okay. That's an awesome question. I read something in the paper that said like in the next two weeks, they anticipate half of Europe will have had had Omicron. And so this just can be like enormous numbers. And so then if you're listening to this, I would assume that like 100% of people are going to end up getting exposed in the next year or two. And so then you asked the perfect question, what do we do about it and how we manage it and how do we think about it on, on both sides, on the vaccine front and on actually getting COVID. So the data is going to say that the, the number one thing you got to do is try to get your vitamin D level optimized. And now vitamin D is one of those things you don't want it too high and then you also don't want it too low. And if you're not doing anything to support it, a lot of times that'll hover down around 10, 15, 20. The number, at least on the US metrics, we like it to be between about 50 and uh, 50 and 80, 50 to 100. And so then it turns out in terms of the way that you take vitamin D, and I like to take it with K2 is going to be the most effective and is best for blood vessel health, then you can take somewhere between 1,000 international units a day and, and 20,000, but probably 5 to 10 is, is going to be optimal. And so then whenever, what I've been doing as I go through the pandemic, anytime I get a blood test, I check my vitamin D and I'm paying attention to my numbers of, and I've been basically hovering right at 80. And then to think about what I do, I don't remember to take it every day, but this is how I am personally with all vitamins. I take them like four days a week, but I do six things, six to 10 things every day that are good for me. So, but I've just, I'm always rotating around which ones I do. But the vitamin D and K2, I'll take probably 10,000 international units four or five times a week. And so then, that's probably one of the best things you can do. Maintaining some in your body is, is a great idea. And so we take zinc and calcium. We don't necessarily recommend permanently taking vitamin C, but I would say for the next six months, taking a couple grams of vitamin C every day is a, a reasonable idea. And then we take fairly broad antioxidant and sort of mitochondrial support supplements. And there's going to be millions of those all across the board. There's a supplement called N-acetylcysteine, which is a precursor to glutathione, which is super helpful for helping people detox. And a lot of people think that the N-acetylcysteine, and sometimes you can get a combination of it, N-acetylcysteine plus glutathione, 
And so we'll, we actually will take that. And what I found is that the N-acetylcysteine helps detox. And there's a theory that it helps detox the spike protein. And so then that's a great supplement. And people, there's been quite a bit of study over the last 20 years on the value of high quality fish oils and, and particularly for blood vessel and vascular health. And so then we'll recommend that. And, you know, that's just all of the low hanging fruit, simple ideas of wellness and support. There's going to be a category of people who may have been dwindling and struggling slowly for the last four or five years. Maybe you've felt like your health isn't as as great as it could be. Maybe people started drinking too much during the pandemic. All kinds of crazy things have happened to everybody in the last couple of years. If you're in that category, then what I would say is now is the best time ever to take your game to the next level. And so I would go see somebody who's a functional medicine doctor. If you've had fatigue and low energy and you think there might be something going on, there probably is. So I would say do some testing and try to figure things out and sort out a strategy of taking the next six months. Here we are. We're just past our New Year's resolutions. But I would say take the next six months and try to get in the best health of your life. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And then I think that Find somebody that does some of the things that we do, like the IV therapy, because what I found is, is that the IV therapy is incredibly helpful for supporting people before and after the vaccines, for sure. But then after COVID, we see a lot of people who have really bad brain fog and headaches. We see after COVID, we see a lot of people with pneumonia and they have long-term pulmonary things happening. We've seen a lot of myocarditis. And so then if you find somebody and you can go in and meet them in a casual way and get to know them and do some testing and kind of have a thoughtful conversation and slowly learn about all of this type of stuff, then God forbid, if something happens, then it's going to be a lot easier for you to get in and see them. But then it's been surprising for me, the people who we regularly see, everybody sailed through COVID. Nobody really had any troubles. And the people who my my challenges happen from people who really hadn't been doing this type of stuff. And so I, in the back of my mind, think that adopting principles of functional medicine and wellness, I think probably is going to give you some resiliency and potentially make you less likely to have problems. And if you think of those people that got clots, the reason their blood was hypercoagulable was because there was inflammation in their blood at baseline. And so that was a one plus one is like 10. But if you can fix all of that stuff, or at least start to optimize that. And so then my final recommendation on the pre-front is this is this opportunity. And I'm so excited because I'm leaning as hard as I possibly can into super healthy lifestyle. And I'm having a ton of fun with it. And so every morning I sauna, every morning I cold plunge like six or seven times. And then I've turned super crazy healthy eating into a game that I just, I I love and I enjoy so much that it becomes super easy to continue to do. Because most people, they try it and they fall off. Exactly. So use this as, it's almost like the best opportunity to get into the best shape of your life. 
And all of those things that you have recommended are very easy for us to do. Vitamin C, zinc, D, all of those things are so easy for us to do. And there's so many other things that are going to boost your physical and mental health as well that are low-hanging fruits as well. Like you mentioned, eating clean food, drinking clean water, getting out into the sunlight, moving our body, getting good rest, de-stressing, meditation, sauna, cold plunge, all of these things are going to get you in the best shape possible so that if you choose to get the vaccine, you are going into it from a strong, healthy place. And if you get COVID, again, you are healthy and strong. But I wanted to ask you, what do you recommend in IVs for people to consider? What would they do prior to boost their immune system? What would they do prior to the vaccine? And then just in general, what would you recommend? Okay. For IV therapy, it's interesting. And I'm going to try to break it down in a simple way. There are several categories that we work our way through. So one thing is almost everybody tends to be deficient in magnesium. And so there's probably a little bit of an imbalance of calcium-magnesium ratios. Is that because of our soil? That's probably because of our lifestyle. That's probably because of our soil. There's a multi, it's probably multimodal and multifactorial reasons for that. That is a really good question. I wish I had a better answer for that. But you can do some testing. You can do tests to see what the magnesium level is in your red blood cells. So we do some testing. But then there, we do an IV called Mineral Reset that has some, and I can probably share that with you. Just what you're notes. doing right now. That was what I did when I was sat down and I was talking to you. <laughs> and so then that was good. And so then that would be like one category of something that's interesting. Another category would be a antioxidant strategy. And so then with an antioxidant strategy, what typically would happen is people would take vitamin C and then combine in a handful of other things with vitamin C. And then when people said, if I'm mixing all of these things with vitamin C, it's almost like a cocktail. And so then one of the doctors, I think that was influential in, in early on, and that was named Myers. And so then that became the Myers cocktail. And it turns out that that would be things like it, there's going to be vitamin C, and then it's going to be buffered with bicarbonate. And that's important because I'll get a lot of people that have been all over the world getting IVs. And then if they don't buffer it appropriately, it's too acidic. And if it ever burns going in, that's a problem. And people will get like calcifications in their veins and will start to lose veins and have vein injury. So you have to, whoever is doing it, it's very important to get the pH buffering right with that. But in the Myers cocktail, often people will take B vitamins. And there's a, a whole spectrum of different B vitamins that you can put in with different effects. And some people will be a little bit sensitive to the B vitamins. People who are real healthy, no problems, but certain patients with immune problems can be certain. And so will modulate based on how people tolerate them. Usually that'll have magnesium and usually that'll have some calcium and selenium. And you can put things in like lysine is a great antiviral. And now, if you think about your supplements, lysine is an amino acid, but that has some antiviral effects. And so that would might be an interesting one to add on. 
adding in some selenium and some other trace minerals just to support and balance can be interesting. And then a traditional sort of one, two, three combo of IV therapy then might include glutathione, which is an antioxidant that is probably the most important antioxidant in the liver. And it's one that we like a lot. And so people will do that as a combo sort of platter. And interestingly, I can tell you that that one is helpful for patients in general. And then just so you know, some people that have difficulty metabolizing sulfur can have a little bit of difficulty with glutathione. But then if they take sublingual molybdenum, it'll go away. And even when I started doing IVs, I was real sensitive to it. I couldn't take it at all. And then I just, for two months, I took molybdenum. And then after that, I never had a problem. So it's kind of interesting, you know, things like that. And that would be a very great IV to do in general. And it's so interesting because they say, don't go to the hospital. But then they say, don't leave your house. But then you can't do anything. And and you can't advertise that you treat COVID. And so then we don't treat COVID acutely, even though it would probably be my best skill of doing of anything that I do if I did it. So it's interesting. I feel like I'm at the world championships and I'm just sitting on the sideline. I'm a commentator on the sideline of the problem of our era. But I can tell you that that is a very helpful sequence. And you could, if you had COVID and you got somebody to give you that IV sequence, people tend to do real well with that. And magnesium vasodilates blood vessels. So people who have COVID when they get a magnesium IV tend to feel better and it improves blood flow. There's been a fair bit of research looking at vitamin C in COVID, and that certainly can be quite helpful. It's an antioxidant. And so then there's a lot of inflammation and oxidative stress happening in COVID. So vitamin C can be helpful with that. And there are studies of people, you know, getting vitamin C and ICUs and patients who got the vitamin C do better. I still caution people to remember that pH balancing stuff. It's quite interesting. And so then you just want to manage that piece. And for people with COVID, they do also do quite well with glutathione. And it's an antioxidant, but it works in a different way from vitamin C, and people will respond well to that. There's another category of IVs is NAD. So NAD is an interesting one, is a derivative of vitamin B3. And so it's an interesting one because it's a electron donor. And so it exists in two forms. It exists as a high energy called NAD+. And then what happens is it can donate an electron to facilitate a reaction in the body and it gets converted into NADH. And then what happens is it gets reconverted back into NAD+, and it keeps donating electrons. So it's like currency in the body. So it turns out NAD is helpful for driving certain reactions in your mitochondria. It's helpful for driving a lot of oxidation reduction reactions in your cell, doing things like repairing your DNA. So it's a whole bunch of interesting physiological benefits. But when we do NAD as an IV, when it's floating around in your bloodstream, the first thing that it does is it gets absorbed by the cells that line your blood vessels, which are the endothelial cells. And our perspective is that NAD has this effect of optimizing basically how those endothelial cells work because we're getting their mitochondria to work a little bit better. 
and so they can they start to be able to react to the the just the physiology of blood pressure and and things like that a little bit better. And I wasn't sure how it was going to go, but for healthy people generally do very well with NAD. NAD can cause some histamine and flushing reactions, and so I probably would not use it in the heart of an acute COVID event. But when people are recovering from COVID, I found it to be extremely helpful. A lot of people will take it. And it turns out the NAD, you can get it as a liquid vial and you can inject it with an insulin syringe, just like you inject peptides. And usually it comes like 200 milligrams in a mil, which means it's 100 milligrams in 50 units. And people will generally like to take 10 to 50 units, which would be like somewhere between 20 and 100 milligrams. The thing to remember about NAD is it has a little bit of flushing. You can feel chest pressure just initially when it comes on. So I recommend starting low. A lot of people have told me that a lot of the long COVID symptoms got better after they started doing the NAD. And I think in part of that is, is the other thing NAD does is it drives detox reactions. And so I told you that the the, you could take glutathione or some of these other things to help detox reactions and detox the body and potentially, let's say, detox that spike protein that's stuck on those monocytes. But another way to detox might be NAD. And it's also extremely prevalent, both in the liver and the brain. And so then if we could mitochondrially turn on those parts of the brain, is interesting. So I'll just give you two more. Methylene blue probably has is a dye but it has some mitochondrial stimulating benefits and and some antimicrobial benefits that may be helpful for COVID and and helpful for long COVID. And a lot of people are taking sublingual or oral preparations of it, but you can also do an IV. And these are little add-on things. And then you probably heard of ozone therapy, which is a regulated kind of normal procedure in many parts of the world and in many parts of the world is totally unregulated or or are not available. But there's a form of it where you just inject the gas into the vein. That's called DIV. I don't recommend that because that gas could go to the is going to go to the lungs and and could cause problems there. There are people who will promote that that's a reasonable idea because they do it so slow it dissolves into the blood. But then you can pull some blood out of the body and mix it with ozone. And if you do that 10 times, they call that a 10 pass. And there's machines that come from Germany that allow you to do that. One's called Hermann and one's called Zatzman. And then there's another thing you can do with ozone, which is you can run it through a dialysis filter or a plasmapheresis filter. And then while that's happening, you can do a low level of ozone. And I would say that's probably the greatest treatment for COVID that exists other than things like monoclonal antibodies. And I would say after that, and so it's it's quite helpful, but that's super unregulated and super not available. And for the most part, people haven't been treating people with acute COVID, but ozone has some direct antiviral effects and it also has some immune modulating effects and it also has some mitochondrial stimulating effects. And so then I think the ozone modalities, particularly the plasmapheresis, because you're pulling plasma off and you're pulling plasma that has toxicity and inflammation off of the body and then just a chance to reboot the immune system. And so then I think that those are interesting because they can be helpful for helping people improve immune health and overall wellness upfront. I wouldn't do plasmapheresis because I don't want to pull any immune cells off during COVID, but ozone dialysis would be a great thing to do. And I think, unfortunately, 
it's it's just been we've had a little bit of our head in the sands on this topic because we haven't let people just get out there and start treating people and doing their best. So then if you think of it from my perspective, what we really ought to be doing is for, okay, you don't want to get vaccinated, no problem. But if there's a problem, then I'm probably going to treat you acutely. Our hands are tied in North America of not being able to really treat people acutely. Now, Interestingly, I think that this is going to be an exciting moment because with Omicron, we're seeing the hospitals now say, if you have COVID, guess what? You can, if you're a doctor, you can come to work. You're just going to go work on the COVID ward because there's no doctors left. There's no nurses left. Every people are, you know, so overwhelmed. And I think it's going to evolve into a place where it becomes a new normal. And once it becomes a new normal and there's no capacity in the hospitals, it may be that people are fine with people getting treated in clinical settings. And so that would be my prayer that it comes into just a normal thing that we start to treat. And so we're, we're watching. I'm not doing it now. When that time comes, I would. So then you realize You've got some platforms of IV therapy with some things that are antioxidant, some things that are oxidative. Ozone is oxidative. So they they work by totally opposite mechanisms. But the oxidative aspect of ozone is antiviral, and it creates an antioxidant response in the body. So then they both paradoxically have antioxidant effects, and you can combine them. And so then now we begin to mix and match IV therapy. And then the next thing in terms of IV therapy is you've heard of peptides. And so then the peptides are quite interesting to consider. And then I like the way this is going in our conversation, because let's say you say, okay, wait a second, I can't get the vaccine. Okay, good. So then let's say this person we're talking about ends up getting COVID. Well, then maybe we're going to do everything else humanly possible. So then I might actually think about ivermectin. I probably think about hydroxychloroquine. And that's been the evolution of my thought I, is, is that I'm going to work with what I've got. And so then interestingly, the peptides, do you know what peptides are? Hey, everybody, it's Nick now because Melissa has gone off to breastfeed Bambi. So we're playing a bit of a game of podcast roulette here and tag teaming which is fun because I did this recently with Dr. John Martini. I jumped in when Melissa had to take care of Bambi and I was fully briefed on everything. And again, with this episode, I have been intimately involved in crafting the questions and being a part of this. So I'm up to speed. I know we're up to. So Matthew, it's great to be connected. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. So you were talking about peptides. So do you want to just jump back in at that point? Oh, yeah. So there's a a whole bunch of different ways that the the body uses to communicate within itself and essentially what the what cells do is they create signals and so then those signals can take a number of forms sometimes those signals are just tiny little small molecules sometimes those are vitamins and minerals and sometimes those signals are big proteins and a big protein would be like an antibody. And so we were talking about monoclonal antibodies or antibodies that are a reaction to a vaccine. And that's a big protein that could bind onto a COVID virus, for example. But sometimes there are very small proteins, just either two or three amino acids all the way up to 50 or 60 amino acids. 
And those baby proteins, sometimes they're just the active segment of a bigger protein, and they will have interesting biological effects. And so then within the body, there are some peptides that stimulate your mitochondria to work more efficiently. There are some that have anti-inflammatory effects. There are some that help us with connective tissue and collagen. There are some that regulate how organs work, how your brain, basically almost every organ has a one or two peptides that reg- help to regulate the function of that organ. And then the area that's been an interesting one is that there are some peptides that have an immune mechanism. And so then sometimes they'll help cells make antibodies. Sometimes they'll help cells fight infections. And overall, the peptide category would include all of these small, quote unquote, baby proteins that have a role in the body of doing something. We were talking about IV therapy And so then over the last couple of years, there's been an interest of people who are using peptides to support them as they deal with health and health issues. And sometimes that's people with chronic infections, sometimes that's autoimmunity. And so then people have used all of those different categories of peptides that I discussed. But some of the immune peptides have been very helpful for some people when they're in an acute Oh, I have a great idea. Can I have a bone broth too? <laughs> might placing, as, might as well. <laughs> yeah, but guess what? Since we're, we're placing orders, I made a list. I, I set a list of good things that you can do. And, and maybe the best thing that you could do is take incredible care of your gut and do a lot of stuff for gut health. And one of the things we do is to drink bone broth all the time. So I drink it here in the office and whenever I'm doing podcasts, which is awesome. But the conversation about peptides, the immune peptides, I I was just for completeness and finishing off what we were talking about before we took our break. You can take peptides IV. And so then thymus and alpha-1 is one peptide that some people will take intravenously. And it can be helpful for people who are recovering from COVID or uh, some people will even use it during, during a COVID event. And so we went through the antioxidant IV, some of the kind of the supplement things that you can add in like NAD and methylene blue. And we talked about ozone and then peptides is another category of things that you can do IV. Peptides is also a category that has been pretty helpful for people as they're in this immune conversation because the immune peptides, we found them to be very helpful both before and after COVID vaccines. And we found if people are having a reaction to a vaccine, we'll have them take peptides. And a lot of times it'll downregulate or balance or regulate or modulate the immune reaction. And so then if you think, if you think overall in the category of what we're talking about, Ozone regulates immune function to some extent. Peptides have a a fairly significant potential to regulate immune function. Exosomes, which are stem cell secretions, and stem cells actually also can regulate. So if if the immune function is too high, it'll bring it down. If it's too low, sometimes it can support it and bring it back up. And so then those are all interesting things that can be considered if somebody's having a real extreme reaction after a vaccine. And then we found them to be helpful because if the body is stuck in an inflammatory response after having had COVID, which would be like long COVID, then a lot of times some of these strategies of balancing immune function can be helpful. 
And so then the, the peptides are, for the most part, subcutaneous injectable things that people can do. We talked about the IVs. And just to bring it back so people heard the finishing part of it, I, with Melissa, we were talking about trying to understand why some people have long-term consequences from COVID or from the COVID vaccine. And I don't think it's 100%, okay? But I think a very significant piece of it is, is that there can be these, these white blood cells that are called monocytes that can end up having spike protein that gets stuck in them. And then they, they're in an inflammatory state, and then they float around in the body. They can go across the blood-brain barrier. They get mobilized when you exercise. This can be a tricky thing. And so then all of a sudden, here you are six months after getting a vaccine or maybe six months after having had COVID. And then here people have no exercise tolerance. And it's interesting, I'll have people that are like literally the, the greatest athletes in the world, people that were the best athletes in the world, a couple of them, and then they can't run 100 yards. And that's because when they start to exercise, they're mobilizing those monocytes that have spike proteins in them. There's a new concept that is interesting where you can take a drug that basically resets that monocyte. It's called a CCR5 antagonist, and it binds onto a receptor on that cell. The name of the drug is Maraviroc. And so there's a protocol Dr. Patterson has where you take a statin plus this drug. And, and there's some evolving aspects to how, how that is. But I think the intriguing and interesting piece around that is that you begin to say, oh, okay, now here we are with people that may have some long-term consequences from basically that spike protein being you know, stuck in the body and the body can't get rid of it. And then you say, okay, now suddenly we may have some intriguing and interesting things that we can do about it. We might be able to just take a, a traditional medicine drug cocktail that might reset those monocytes. We might be able to take some peptides that could balance the immune system. We might be able to take some supplements like N-acetylcysteine that help our liver detox, and then suddenly we might be able to de detox some of these things out. We might be able to take some antioxidants and kind of balance immune function and, and support just biochemical processes. We might be able to take some NAD that can help detox and donate electrons and support biochemical processes, and maybe that's going to make it better. We might be able to do something called plasmapheresis, where we basically just pull like an oil change. We pull the plasma off and then give you your cells back. And that kind of reboots as a detox strategy. We might be able to do things like ozone and, and use some interesting modalities there that can facilitate oxidation reduction reactions within the body, kind of similar to NAD, and potentially do that in parallel to all of these things. And then we might be able to use stem cells and exosomes and some of the sexier regenerative medicine strategies to calm down, balance, and regulate immune function. And so then where it leads me to is a place where I have a fair bit of optimism. And that's just my first blush 1.0. I've got more than that. But that just goes to show you that there are a lot of interesting and intriguing ways. And then what's going to happen in this this long COVID conversation is, is that we're going to begin to get data and then we're going to begin to build clinical experience. And those two were equally important because the clinical experience is a really, we're on the front lines 
And the COVID that I was dealing with four months ago is not the COVID that I'm dealing with today. That's interesting. And so then I'm, I'm looking at the data from four months ago and I'm looking at everything that's been done. But today is a brand new day and it's totally different than what it was. And the blessing, hopefully, is going to be that there's going to be hundreds of millions of people that got Omicron and they're going to have some natural immunity. And so hopefully, you know, that's going to be beneficial. But then even when problems happen, over the last five years, we've gotten exponentially better at how we think about the immune system and how the tools and strategies people like me have to work with it. And that's just going to exponentially continue to grow and grow in the next few years. And so I think that I was leading with try to, and, and me and Melissa had a good talk about this earlier with this idea, try to get in the best health that you've ever been in this year. But even if that doesn't happen, the good news is we're learning so many things so fast that it's going to be a wild ride. And we're going to have, I think, a potential to get to a much healthier state than really people had ever been in over the next couple of years. That's interesting because the recent episode I did with Dr. John DiMartini was talking about the polarity of the pandemic and looking for the opposite, looking for the, the actual positive that comes out of this. And that can be one that's getting getting us into that sort of shape. And I feel like I'm definitely, you know, apart from I am doing a fairly long and slow mold protocol. I've done different mold protocols over the years and I've just found that for my system, they've been too aggressive. So I'm just taking my time with it, but it does mean that I'm doing a lot of the stuff you already mentioned, which is good. But I also think, is Omicron really an opportunity for someone like myself or anyone to perhaps get a lesser variant? Or could there be a more subtle variant that comes out again as part of these mutations? Okay. I'm 100% a fan of the silver lining kind of playbook <laughs> of life. And so then I'm telling myself every day that there's silver linings to this. That being said, the Omicron is so contagious, and I think you probably can get it more than one time. You, you can certainly get COVID more than one time. Each time you get it, it's a pretty big stress to your body. And so if you can delay getting it, I would try to delay getting it because, as I was saying to Melissa, we're getting so much better and we're getting better and better availability of things that can help people with it. But on the mold front, this one is interesting. If Do you want to go into that for a second? Well, I think a lot of people are dealing with mold and don't even know it. So I think it's definitely an interesting topic. And I'm all too aware of how it affects your immune system. It's been an absolute blessing and a curse for me because it has sent me down a different path in life. But at the same time, it's been very spiritually and emotionally challenging to deal with. And I feel like I'm on a very good track at the moment. And, and I don't, I'm not complaining about my health. I think my health's really good. But for me personally, I feel like I have almost like a glass ceiling. I can be great, but there's always this kind of cap on my potential. And like that cap to me seems to be the mold. So I can go really great and I can rock climb and I can train and I can surf. And the minute I just do all that, but have a late night or eat too much food or do something that puts me out of balance, it's boom, I get taken down by that. So I, I'm always walking a bit of a fine line. I almost have to live this kind of perfect lifestyle. And I'd love, I'd love to not have to live such a perfect lifestyle, even though I quite enjoy it. So yeah, we can go down that path for sure. Okay. So then this is a good one. I'm going to tie mold into the whole conversation of everything we're talking about. Great. And I'm just, for people who might be first listening to this, I'll just tell a little bit of the biology of this. 
but then I'll forecast what I'm going to say. And that is, is that, quote unquote, this conversation that is mold, it turns out probably does the same thing to the body that COVID does over the long term. And so then what I'm going to do is talk you through a little bit of the biology of that, how that happens, and then a little bit of the biology of how we think about resetting that. And to then begin to think that physiologically, COVID is going to do almost exactly the same thing, and probably all chronic infections do the same thing. And then we'll circle back to some of the ways that we think about it. And so it turns out the sort of dominant paradigm that's happening right now with mold is just that there's a water damage building. And so then in that water damage building, there would be some sheetrock that got wet. And so then mold is living in there. The new evidence that's coming out, there's a famous doctor, Dr. Shoemaker and Dr. Heyman are two of the big guys. And so then they realized, they found out, well, turns out that that is partially mold. It's also another bacteria called actinomyces and then some other bacteria called gram-negative rods. And it turns out that the actinomyces, generally you can't see, but it's when you walk into a house that has that musty smell. And I remember going to like relatives' houses that I had that were in their like 80s and 90s and maybe they hadn't cleaned or something. I bet I viscerally remember that smell from my childhood. And so then the theory is that if somebody breathes that in, and particularly if, if they have a biofilm in the nose, then the actinomyces and the mold can start to live in there and secrete basically mycotoxins and create inflammation in the body. And it turns out that that can go across the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain and cause neurological inflammation. And in fact, they do like vision tests. And one of the things that happens is there's this test called the visual contrast sensitivity that goes off because of the inflammation in the brain. But then what happens is the body goes, God, there must be some kind of crazy thing causing inflammation. So the body goes, I got to react to this. And from a genetic level, it goes into a fight or flight state. And so it starts to print inflammatory genes. So there's this experimental lab in the United States that is doing a test called this genie test. And then what it does is you can look and see if you're in an inflammatory mode in terms of what genes you're printing. And so then you'll see people that are positive. It's all red. And so then what happens is, is now we've got this process of trying to detox out the mold. And mold, you detox by binding the mycotoxins in your gut. And this obviously takes forever. We do a lot of work with peptides, both on the bioregulator front and then also on the immune front and plasmapheresis and NAD and kind of other strategies to make that go quicker. But then once sort of the VCS, the eye test starts to normalize, then there's a peptide that starts to regulate neurological function and neurological expression of what genes are being printed. And it's called VIP. And so then it turns out that once you can start to get there, then all of a sudden you turn that inflammatory expression of genes down and people will start to feel better. So our theory is, is that, and traditionally it was, okay, you're going to go bind and do this stuff for two years. Our theory is that we can get you there quicker with a lot of the IV therapy and kind of regenerative things that we do. And then people don't do good if you do VIP early, but you can do other peptides early and then end up with VIP. Now, what I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to bet pretty solidly on this, but this is what we're seeing, is that long COVID on some of these gene expressions tests, 
looks and behaves just like long-term mold. If you understand what mold is like, then what's going to happen is it's going to turn out that long COVID and then probably also people who have long-term reactions to the COVID vaccine are going to behave very similar to chronic mold patients. But then now that you begin to realize, oh, okay, we've got ways to clear out the sinuses, we got ways to detox the body from mold, we've got ways to then use peptides to regulate gene expression and neurological inflammation. This is probably the state of the art of how to think about mold for the most part. And now we are going to evolve into, for the next five or 10 years, using very similar strategies for how do we detox out spike protein? How do we calm things down? How do we balance immune function? And then how do we decrease neurological inflammation and then change gene expression so we bring it back into baseline? That makes sense because part of me is thinking, man, I've been living with mold for 13 years, so COVID's a piece of cake. But the other part of me thinking, maybe I don't want to get it because I'm going out later today to get a haircut and get a new surfboard and I'm buying my dad some new golf clubs for his 80th birthday. And so I'm sitting here listening to you thinking, okay, I'm going to take a betadine nasal spray. I'm going to like load up on different things because if I can delay it as long as possible, you don't know what's going to happen. Like this, These variants could become less and less serious, right? It's definitely a possibility. That would be the hope. And if that happens, then you'd sure like to wait until May and then get like the junior varsity version of it. But that's a great point that you brought up because Melissa was saying, what do you do? We're, we really leaned into some of these things, do a lot of mouthwash, do nasal rinses. And all of these strategies, I think, are helpful. And then the betadine has been a really great one. And that one's a simple one. My friend Mark Hyman put together a lot of it, and then we added to it together. But the betadine, basically, you take six ounces of saline, and then you mix you can mix either two tablespoons or one tablespoon. Well, I have people start with one because it can burn a little bit. And so then you'll, you'll take and mix that up and then you can use a neti pot or there's different ways to do sinus rinsing with that. And that's a new one that I should have thought of right from the beginning. Although we were having everybody nebulize glutathione and colloidal silver and hypertonic kinton minerals all the way through. How would you nebulize colloidal silver? Because I have a nebulizer. Would you just literally take colloidal silver and put a small amount and nebulize it? Is it simple as that? Or Yeah, but you're going to want to use a colloidal silver that was made at a concentration for that. So for like Designs for Health has a form that was designed for nasal rinses and nebulizing. And I'm, I'm not positive. I think it's 10 parts per million is the concentration. And so, well, I'll take a picture of it and send it to you and put it on your show notes. And so then I would not just take a guess of putting a little in, but we've had a lot of patients nebulize that and I haven't had one problem from it in people who were sick and found it quite helpful. And so then Melissa asked me, and, I, and now as I'm thinking about, you came in, and so now I'm thinking about all the questions she asked me that I wish I had add to my answer. And this is a really good one. This is 100% cash money because I've had this, this paid off for me about like 20 times in the last three weeks. That is just that I 
have told people, this is what you got to get, which is go through the list, make the nasal rinses. If you're interested, are you going to do peptides? Then try to get those peptides, get vitamin C, get glutathione, get N-acetylcysteine. And so we've kind of had people go out. And so then the last time we had a crazy surge, everybody in the world's calling me and it's panic at the disco because nobody had anything. Everybody was out. And lately I've been getting calls and it's been entertaining for me because I go, how's it going? And they go, I've already treated myself. I already ordered everything that you told me three weeks ago. I'm totally on top of my game. I got everything here. And so then those have been really low stress calls because you get a call late at night and somebody just started coughing, but they're like, hey, guess what? I'm home, but I got everything here and I'm treating myself. It's so important. I ended up putting together my own protocol and sharing it with friends, taking work from Pierre Corey, Dr. Peter McCullough, and a whole bunch of different things, including different essential oils like grapefruit and lemon, frankincense, pine oil, all these things that are have shown to be effective with spike proteins. And I put it together into protocol. And looking at it, I realized, holy crap, I don't have everything that I need. So I went out and actually got everything we need. And I noticed even betadine was hard to get in many places. People are catching on to this. I'm curious, someone like myself, who we've spoken, I guess, at some length in terms of some of the things I've dealt with, would you, because it's interesting for us, we have, we live in a country where there is fairly strong discrimination against people who are vaccine-free. and something which I have spoken about. And it's challenging for us because it separates me from my son who lives in a different state. Would you recommend taking all that into account plus my history? Because a lot of people listening to this have issues with their immune system. It's pretty common. Would you recommend that they still get vaccinated or myself would still get vaccinated for COVID knowing that we have these more gentle variants coming out? This is a loaded question. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a loaded question, but it's a good one. I'll totally take it. I'll totally take it. What I'm trying to do is engage into thinking about these things in thoughtful and interesting ways. One thing, and even for me, even for me, I was like a little tiny nervous about it. And then interestingly, I got both vaccines and then I got anxious. And I'm like the least anxious person ever. It was like, it drove me crazy. That was my sort of vaccine complication. A physiological or was it just emotional, mental? Well, I think it was physiological that led to emotional, mental. It's kind of interesting. But then I just started doing, tripling down on everything that I do. And then next thing I know, I felt better than I did before. And so then my part of my question would be, there are certain people who would say, in under no circumstances would I consider it, okay, which it is, I'm fine with. And then there's going to be another person who's going to say, I don't really want to do it, and I can't visit my son, and we're totally discriminated against in Australia, which I've been totally aware of. I've got a bunch of friends that are over there that are just like, it's crazy. There's a person who's a great immune and a very thoughtful person about immune problems, named, his name's Joshua Lesky. And he wrote an article called A New Hope. And it's, he talks about immune stuff. And I, I just, I'll just give a shout out to my friends in Australia. And, and he's also <laughs> vaccine-free and has suffered deeply as a result of it. So my heart goes out to you and everybody. Now, what I would say is, 
if it was driving you crazy and you felt, you know what, I'm, I, I wish there was a way for me to get back into society, and yet there was this fear of the vaccine, then what I would say is, I think we've gotten to the point where we have found if we do a bunch of Myers cocktails and antioxidant IVs and glutathione before, and I have had hundreds of people who would look just like you, pretty healthy, but there's a glass ceiling in the Lyme spectrum or mold spectrum and really stressed and really stressed that the vaccine was going to make them worse. And so I've had hundreds and hundreds of people who I've given my IV cocktails to before. They took immune peptides all the way through. And we didn't know this at the beginning. We didn't know what to think about it, but those people are taking peptides essentially all the way through and none of them had anything happen to them. And so then I had them take the IVs before the vaccine and after. And interestingly, this just became, of all of those, half of those I didn't do because I'm just talking to other doctors around the world. I was just sending out our protocols and so people started doing them. And so then I would say, from that perspective, if and, and interestingly, it goes back to when I was an anesthesiologist. It's like I was like super fast and organized and efficient because that's how you're graded as an anesthesiologist. You have to be fast. And so then I would go, go, go and be doing whatever I was doing. And then I'd get to somebody who was, if I ran into somebody that was really profoundly stressed, I would take my time and I would take as long as I needed to. And because I was always so fast, they would let me, if I slowed down, they would be like, okay, leave them alone. But if I could take somebody and get them into a chill spot, and it usually only took me about eight minutes, which is a super long time before a surgery. But if I sat with you and did breathing exercises for eight minutes and chilled you out, I never had anybody have any anxiety around the surgery. They'd all wake up perfect because I put them into an amazing state before and then they went through it just fine. And so then I think about the vaccine. And so then if you said, oh, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm ready to engage, I would say, I'll tell you everything to do and you're going to do it and you'll probably be totally fine. And then that probably is going to give you some immune support that's going to help you. And then if you got actually got the COVID, and I, I've had 10 or 15 of my own friends that were vaccine hesitant, and then I talked them all into getting vaccinated in, in September and October, and then they all got COVID around Christmas because everybody got COVID but everybody got super mild infections and then all of them had no problems. And so I would say if I could get you into kind of a chill spot emotionally around it and then you realize you're probably going to be totally fine and then we have all these ways to detox you, medication-wise, regenerative-wise, things that you can do yourself, I would say I would say get it and then re-engage. And so that would be what I would vote for. But then if you said, I just, I'm still nervous, then I would just keep talking to you until I could get you into kind of a cool place around it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of me is, I'm not angry about anything. I'm not emotionally charged about it at all. I just believe that we do have the right to choose what goes in our bodies. And I do believe that the people in power in Australia have behaved like children with too much power. And I just, maybe it's the nonconformist in me, but for me, it's just not an option. And so I look at the other things I can do and talking about IV, by the way, because I actually have a fantastic nurse who comes to my house and does IV. Oh, good. And she was due to come this week, but she had COVID like everyone else. But she, she's seeing people every day intimately, but she's due to come back very soon. And I'm just curious, 
maybe it's different for me and different for the, I guess, average person wanting to boost their immunity, but is there a smoking bullet when it comes to COVID protection and intravenous treatments? I think the intravenous treatments are helpful. I went through a whole mediumly broad swath of different things that you can do, and I think those are helpful. I think the role of government should be to be supportive of helping people make decisions, but I think it shouldn't be enforcing decisions like this. And I think the world's a little bit exhausted by this stuff. And it's interesting, even here in the States, the CDC is, okay, you can go back to work in five days. And if you have COVID, but you, you can just go work on the COVID ward if you're a doctor or a nurse. And as the overall infection gets less, we're, I think we're going to evolve into a, a scenario where this becomes less of a pandemic kind of life and death conversation, and it becomes a kind of a strategically, how do you manage that? Then now here's the thing, efficacy of the vaccines is waning. I still think it's a reasonable thing to do. But then as that wanes, there's going to be new vaccines that come out. Okay, that's good. But it's going to be an evolving thing. And if it continues to get milder, then it may be that, and I don't know this, okay, I don't know this, but it may be that in certain circumstances, actually having had Omicron may actually be more protective than certain vaccines. So the natural immunity needs to be counted, I think. I think it's, it's only reasonable that we think kind of rash. Yeah. And that's why we're, we've moved we're not having a rational scientific conversation around policy with regard to the vaccine. What we're doing is, is we're having a political conversation around like one aspect of something. And there's upsides and downsides, but because it's politicized, it's become the only thing that you can talk about. And so I think that that's unfortunate. But yeah, that is what it is. It is, yeah. Because just coming back to the natural, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you were to get Omicron, you'd be exposed to a number of dozens of different types of spike protein compared to in a vaccine, you're exposed to much less different types of spike protein. Is that why you get a better immunity from getting it naturally? Is that how it works? What's the mechanism there? So I may be a tiny bit off, and if I am, I'm going to apologize. But what started out at the beginning was what was called wild type. And so that's like the first one, okay? And so then let's say that has a spike protein and has a certain look to it. Then we're going along, going along, going along, and all of a sudden there's a mutation and there's lots of different mutations. And then uh, different variants have different mutations, which means the spike protein looks different. And so then the spike protein of wild type is a little different. It's similar, but different to the spike protein of Delta, and it's just a little different, again, to the spike protein of Omicron. Now, if you happen to get Omicron, then what your body is going to see is you're going to see a lot of that spike protein, and it's going to make an immune response to the Omicron spike protein. Now, the traditional vaccines were going to help us more actually treat the wild type or maybe another variant from the past. What's going to happen this summer? We don't know. And so then how is it going to mutate? It's going to continue to mutate. And it may be having had Omicron is going to be helpful. It may be that it's not. 
maybe the vaccines are going to be 100% effective, and maybe that they're not. It's The probability that they're going to be 100% effective is low because this thing's always mutating, and it's mutating away from what it was. That takes me back to where I started from, which is, is that the solution to this, therefore, has to be multimodal. It has to be comprehensive. We have to think about everything that we can do up front to get us healthy and preventative. The vaccines is one strategy, but then there's going to be other things to consider. We're going to consider if you've actually had it before, and then there's things to do and then things to do afterwards. But the, the solution really has to be all-encompassing because it has the potential to be fairly overwhelming as an infection. And we have to be prepared to escalate to fairly comprehensive treatment algorithms. Is it fair to say that there's different vaccines? There's an Australian one called COVAX, which has not been approved to be used in Australia, which to me just blows my mind. But they've gone through such lengthy approval processes to be used. Isn't that then just really a vaccine based on genetic sequencing, which is now old technology? And should we even be considering the current set of vaccines or should people who want to get vaccinated, should they be waiting for a newer technology to emerge or just looking at the role of boosters in this? Oh, so that's a good one. So then what is the answer to that question? And when I was an anesthesia, I'm an anesthesiologist. And so you have to get board certified. And so then you, when you go into a hotel room and then there's, you sit down and look at these two other anesthesiologists. And so then they give you two cases and they're like super difficult cases. They're the worst possible case scenario. And so then they say, what do you want to do? The joke is that the answer is always, it depends. That's the beginning of the answer to any board exam question, really, in any specialty, but whether it's immunology or anesthesiology. And so then it depends. And part of that is going to depend on the data. And so we're going to evolve into that and understand it more. There is, I think, good evidence that the vaccines that exist now, both the adenovirus vaccines and the mRNA vaccines, are helpful in the sense that people are less likely to have really extremely severe COVID. So they're helpful. And yet compared to the effectiveness that they had, because they were in this like 90% effectiveness rate, and that's going to come down. And so then back in the day, last summer, if I was talking to you, I would really try to talk you into a vaccine last summer, especially if I knew what I know now about solving problems with vaccines, with everything that we do or is so helpful versus now we don't know how effective it's going to be. And then the virus is going to evolve. And the answer to that question is going to be different in May. It's going to be different this September. And, but then what's going to happen is, is there's going to be new vaccines for this variant. Now then, how long is this variant going to last? Is it going to last for six months or is it going to last for two years? And then does natural immunity from this variant confer immunity for the next variant or not? So then... It depends. It depends. And it's so many variables because you can't sit here and answer that question because there's so many variables. If you're myself and you know that you have dealt with mold and Lyme and different things, Epstein-Barr and all these sorts of things, all these stealth co-infections, then you think, okay, get vaccinated could really be messy. Get COVID could be messy or maybe not. Maybe I'd be totally fine. So I sit here and go, number one, I don't like being told what to do with my body. Number two, I don't like the risks associated with the vaccine. Number three, I do trust my immune system and my body. I do feel like I've got the tools and I'm prepared. So that's my stance on it. 
So, <laughs> Matthew, I know that you and I could seriously, like if we had a dinner party, we probably wouldn't go to sleep. We'd probably just chat all night. I love it. This is probably borderline the longest episode we've ever done, which is very generous of you. So thank you very much for taking the time to go so deep. And I really would love to, <laughs> I'd love to continue, but I can't. So I'd love to switch into a rapid fire to just dig into some of your little personal nuggets of wisdom. Okay. All right. So what's bringing you the most joy right now? I'm teaching a lot. I'm teaching my team. We're growing our team. My team is getting amazing. And being with my team and they're teaching me as much as I'm teaching them, going to work and doing conversations like this and being in the heart of everything that's going on brings me more joy than probably anything I've ever done in my life, to be honest. Beautiful. So great to be so clear on your mission. Some people really struggle finding that and you've got it, which is beautiful. Let's pretend you have a magic wand. And you can put one book in the curriculum in every high school around the world. What book do you choose? Oh, there was this book called The Alchemist. Mm. It's a, a very Fightful. kind of thoughtful, yeah, it was a good, good one. Yeah, that's a good choice. Actually, it was in my son's curriculum, I believe. Okay, good. Let's talk about how your day looks. Do you have a morning routine and what does that look like? Oh, yeah. I get up. And then I do this yoga practice called Nauli. So basically, you take your abdomen and you spin it around in one direction, and then you spin it around in the other direction. And then I do that like a couple hundred times. And I do yoga and strength training that I do just kind of like moving around. And then I get an asana. And then I do basically like a sitting yoga. And I used to only do that like in normal temperature, but I started doing it in the sauna because I like the detox. And then I go get in a cold plunge. And then I have a whole bunch of different, super interesting like drinks of vitamins and minerals and supplements and coffee that we make that's super amazing. And then once I start doing that, then I do phone calls. So I do like phone calls and Zooms from like nine so I do exercise and stuff from basically seven to nine. And then I from nine to 11, I do Zooms and phone calls and talk to people. And then I go like check on all the people that are doing IVs from like 11 to one. And then I do in hydrodissection, I do in ultrasound guided injections into the spine and basically all over the body from one to, I would like to say five, but like one to uh, traditionally, I used to do it till like nine, and now I do it till six or seven. And then that's, that's my day. And then I cook like an amazing dinner every day. Beautiful. What's the one most important thing we can do for our health? I think just maybe for today, I'll say this. For me, is having a super positive mental outlook. And I find we take care of so many, a lot of people with PTSD and trauma and stuff like that. And, and basically, those things trap the body into kind of certain perseverative loops of not feeling okay. And then that basically leads you to have dysfunctional immune system and inflammation and all these other things. And if you can basically create kind of a concept that everything's okay and amazing, I always say it's going to be amazing, like my affirmation that I say to myself. But and so I have that as my baseline state. And I'm deeply and profoundly expecting that it's going to be amazing. Now, I'm going to trust but verify on things and, and still take it super seriously, but I have a very, very positive mental and emotional outlook on my expectation that probably is going to be great. 
Yeah, I can definitely see that with you. What's the one most important thing we can do for our wealth? I think that the best thing that you can do in that category is spend your time doing what you love to do. Because if you're doing what you absolutely love to do, then it's going to be like to get successful is going to take an enormous amount of time. And so if the thing that you're doing, you ridiculously love, then it's going to be like, for me, it was like, I am harder working than anybody that I've ever met. And interestingly, they called me my entire life. They called me the beach bum because at my baseline, if it wasn't for even all of this going on, I would probably spend 100% of my time mountain biking and snowboarding and being in the mountains and goofing around. But I just got into kind of loving this stuff. And so then it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I can relate to that. If I didn't have music, I think I would probably surf all day and rock climb and other things. And it's interesting because talking about doing what you love, yesterday I received the final mix of this song, which I've been working on for two years. It's taken me two years to do one song because it's a very, very ambitious song. I believe it's a song that can absolutely be a number one hit. It's very, very exciting because it's the first one I've heard where I've thought, wow, that's a flawless, near perfect song. And it's taken me two years to get there. I was listening to it yesterday while I was working out, just listening for little changes or things I wanted to make to it. And I started like sobbing, crying at the at an exact point, and this is not an emotional song, it's actually a pop song with, with a very strong message around social media. And I started crying and then I played it again and at the same point, boom, started crying and I thought, in this moment, I have so much joy and so much elation and so much vitality in me that nothing could touch me right now. And I think if we spend more time doing what we love, the onflow effect to your health and to the other areas of your life, like your relationships and your love is incredible. And it sort of leads me into the next question. What's the one most important thing we can do for our love? Okay, I want to hear you sing a little tiny version of it. You know, I probably can't because it's got so much explicit. <laughs> oh, really? Like, That's funny. And, and I'm actually not the singer in this song. This is a new project where I'm writing and I'm bringing new singers in. I found this girl uh-huh. in LA and I've gone through about six different singers and I found this girl and she's completely smashed it out of the park. It's a very, very hard song to sing. But yeah, love, love and relationships. What's number one? So my thing on love is just total acceptance of the other person. Mm. And I'm getting, I'm deeply getting there like with certain people in my life. And I don't know if that I would ever, I don't know how good I was at that, but I'm like, I'm like Barb lives with me and I unconditionally accept whatever she wants. And it was interesting to go through COVID and go through that stuff. And then you realize, okay, I don't even care. I don't have any preferences at all in that relationship. I'm just fine with however it goes. And then just being like totally committed. And so then it's just total acceptance and total commitment. Then interesting. And then not really having any personal agenda around things then leads you to just this kind of curiosity of like how it's going to go. And you know, it's interesting on all of these topics. Like I knew that that was kind of the live hypothetical thing you were supposed to say, but I totally feel that, which is probably my favorite thing that I've ever gotten to do in my life, to be honest. Yeah, I'd have to say that acceptance is one of the most powerful, but also one of the most challenging things to do. It's also something I'm personally working on a lot, a lot. You've said a lot of amazing things in this interview. I think that's one of the most amazing things you've said. And 
And then my tip on that one too is now that I started to be able to do it, then when I don't do it, it's like, oh my God, I totally screwed that up. Yeah, you have the awareness. But but then I have the awareness and then almost right away I go, you know what, I 100% screwed up, that up, that was me, which is, it's almost always my fault. And they always say to guys, it's probably like 100% your fault. And basically, I just thought it can't possibly be my fault. And when you're an anesthesiologist, clinically, you're almost always right compared to everybody else. And so then I spent mo- almost all of my time in my life in my 30s and early 40s being right. And then now I, I feel like I'm probably wrong and I'm probably not the right person to talk about this. But then I feel way more lighthearted and open-minded to like any possibility of what everybody else thinks, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. Thank you so much for your time. This has been super fascinating. I, I know the content you've covered before I came on because I've got the questions in front of me and we wrote them together. And I know that this is going to be extremely supportive for people because Melissa and I, we held back to talk about COVID and vaccines because it has been so charged and so politicized and emotional. But we sort of reached a point where we felt like it really doesn't matter because we have the podcast now in a position where we don't have any sponsors. It's ad-free. And we've done that intentionally to have complete freedom of voice and other reasons as well. But I don't think this should be seen as controversial. Something needs to be censored. This is a conversation between two or three people today having a dinner table conversation. I think the world should be privy to those conversations because it's not biased. We brought you on because we felt like we really needed to have someone on who is pro the vaccine. You have your own hesitations as well. You've seen injuries, but nevertheless, you are someone who does endorse that. And we wanted to maintain a very balanced view. And I think you've done a beautiful job of eloquently stating so many of these things. So thank you for all the work you do and your generosity of time and the protocol you'll be sharing. It's been amazing. Thank you for being on the Melissa Ambrosini Show. Okay, I loved every minute of it. And thank you for being who you are and standing up for your ideas. And I look forward to evolving with you into the conversation. And I can't wait to see where it, what happens. Awesome. Thank you. I truly hope you got so much out of this episode. And I hope you feel inspired wherever you're at in your journey to take your health to the next level. There's so many things that we can be doing to upgrade our health. And I really hope that you do this for yourself and for your family. And if you loved this conversation and you got a lot out of it, please subscribe to my show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, because that means we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will pop up in your feed so that you don't have to go searching for a new episode. And come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me what you got from this episode. I absolutely love connecting with you and I love hearing from you. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them. Do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.